The New Testament reading is from Mark chapter 11, verse 27, to chapter 12, verse 12. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. Was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say, from heaven, he will ask, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say, of human origin... They feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall round it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to, to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him. And went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good afternoon all. It's, it's great to be here with you and um, to be able to worship with you guys and to share God's word with you. But before we start, why don't we pray and ask for God's help? Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word and we thank you because your word is a light onto our paths. Lord, we pray that you prepare our hearts and minds to hear you speak to us this afternoon. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. 
I want you to imagine you're watching a film. The main character is wandering along on his merry way, and the scene is quite cloudy and murky. But yet the main character plods along, thinking he's quite all right, listening to his music. Then you shift along to the next scene, and the character removes his earphones, and we hear screams and shouts and wailing. And then you see the murky clouds start to part. We see the sun shine through, revealing the danger the main character's in. All along, he has been walking on a treacherous and dangerous path, full of all sorts of nasties. The screams and shouts are of those around him who have perished. And the sun shines through, revealing the danger and the reality of his situation. The light reveals what is really happening in this situation. In this passage, we have one scene and two parts. The first part is is a dialogue between Jesus and the religious leaders. And the second part is, is the parable of the tenants. You see, the part one of this passage where the religious leaders question the authority of Jesus isn't the most straightforward passage. It's a bit cloudy and unclear for, for some of us who might read it for the first time. And so in part two, the parable of the tenants, Jesus sheds light on the vague and cloudy dialogue of part one. Without the parable of the tenants, the first part of this passage just seems like a, a question and answer session without really any answers. What is it? You see, by, by telling this parable, Jesus reveals what's really happening here. He reveals what the religious leaders are saying, what their hearts, what our hearts are really like. He broadens the scope from being a person who would question his authority and puts them in the same camp as murderous tenants. You see, it's it's the same heart at work. What a sobering thought to see what our hearts are truly like, to see the danger we're in. But what a joyous thing to know the grace and forgiveness of the ever-loving Father, who not only shines his light onto our hearts, but he also saves us from the danger to where it leads. And, And that's the brightest thing in this passage, you see. A loving God who reveals that what we're what we're really like and how he saves us from ourselves. To guide us through this passage, we'll use three headings. Uh, The first heading is a failure to recognize the authority of the Son. Second heading is the foolishness of keeping what belongs to God. And the third heading is the forsaken Son is our King and Redeemer. So let's dive in. A failure to recognize the authority of the Son. Well, a failure to recognize the authority of the Son is a failure to recognize the authority of the Father. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, there is confusion or lack of clarity as to who Jesus is. And Mark slowly and carefully guides his audience, providing key markers along the way to show us just who this man, Jesus, is. 
In Mark chapter 1, we see the baptism of Jesus. And in between this key event and chapter 11, we see Jesus teach various sermons. And in chapter 6, where where Jesus feeds the 5,000 and walks on water. And then at the start of chapter 11, we, we see Jesus. He enters triumphantly. All of these events would have been known to the chief priests, the teachers and elders, who we can collectively call the religious leaders. They would have seen and heard about the many miracles that Jesus performed. They definitely would have seen Jesus overturn tables in the temple earlier in this passage. They would have seen his authority at work. And yet, here they are, questioning his authority and the one who has given him this authority. Imagine you go to a friend's home and you see their kids, children, take food out of the cupboard and fridge, eat it, use the, use the loo, put their feet on the sofa, watch the TV, essentially treating the house as if it were theirs, it's their own. And then you turned around and said, who gives you the authority to do these things? It would be a foolish thing to say. The children treat the house as it were theirs because it belongs to their parents. The son has authority to do what he does because all that exists belongs to the, to the father. And here the religious leaders are essentially asking, who gives you the right to do only what God can do? And as we see, Jesus' response is, well, well God does. God gives me the authority. Please um, just follow me as we read verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? You see, the religious leaders have seen the various things that Jesus has done. His authority at work in teaching and changing people's hearts. His command over creation, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, and cursing the fig tree. But clearing out the temple earlier in chapter 11, no, this is going too far. Jesus' authority is now undermining their own authority undermining their position, their status. We read on in verse 29. Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. Was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. You see, the Jewish people are unwilling to use God's name in direct conversation. And Jesus, as a Jew, knows this, and hence why he poses this question in in this way. So in this sense and context, heaven and God are interchangeable. If Jesus is doing this based on heavenly authority, then he's doing these things based on God's authority. Because God's authority, heavenly authority, is God's authority. And yet the first people who should recognize God's authority at work 
are the first people to question it in the Son. They question the authority of the Father in the Son. We see earlier in Mark chapter 1, as Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, it says, verse 10, Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. A failure to recognize the authorities of the Son is a failure to recognize the authority of the Father. This baptism scene, which the religious leaders would have heard about clearly, declares the heavenly authority of Jesus. God is pleased in his Son. And as just, and just as the Father has full dominion over creation, so does the Son. Jesus is not a new upstart. No, Jesus possesses the authority of the Father. The Father who formed creation has authority over creation. A failure to recognize this self-evident truth is foolish and unwise. Here we see not a failure to recognize authority, but a failure to admit to the undoubted authority of the Son. We read in verse 31. They discussed it amongst themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. The religious leaders are unwilling to commit to Jesus and therefore unwilling to commit to God. Verse 31, they discussed it amongst themselves and said, if we say from heaven, who will ask, then why didn't you believe? This clearly shows that they are aware of the authority Jesus has and who has given it to him. And yet they would seem to obfuscate with questions. Let me ask you, how, how might we fail to recognize God's authority in our own lives? You see, the questioning, the religious leaders, the questioning of the religious leaders was more of rhetorical questioning, questions which had obvious answers, but nevertheless they were asked to make a point that they, that we would rather live under our own authority instead of God's authority, instead of his heavenly authority. To do so is essentially to act as if our lives belong to us. We are in control because our life is ours and not God's. Our money, our time, our relationships, they all belong to us and therefore we have first dibs on how we use it. Or is that the case? The second heading really reveals how foolish this thinking is. The foolishness of keeping what belongs to God. And so in chapter 12, at the start, we see, um, we read the parable of the tenants. Here in Mark chapter 12, verse 1 to 9, Jesus tells the parable of the tenants, a a parable of greedy tenants who would seek to keep what isn't theirs, and deprive the fruits from the rightful owner. 
Here in this parable, we can, we can consider the planter of the vineyard to be God. And the vineyard is the earth which God has created. In this context, a direct comparison is to compare the tenants to the religious leaders. But a more honest comparison is to compare the tenants to humanity. Whatever this parable tells us about the religious leaders should also tell us about ourselves as human beings. And the sinful heart revealed in this passage is meant to resonate with us. You might be thinking, well, I haven't killed anyone lately. I've never even been to a vineyard. But let me ask you two questions. One, what belongs to God? And two, what belongs to us? You see, because Psalm 24, verse 1, tells us, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, they all belong to God. Essentially, all of life, not just the earth, but all of us who live in the earth, we all belong to God. In a sense, we are tenants, and the lives we live truly belong to God. He is the rightful owner, and he has sent his son to ask for it. And yet, we would seek to act as if it belonged to us. We would deny God the fruits of our time, our love, our money, our power. We would seek to take the glory that belongs to God for ourselves. Approval and praise from others. They don't belong to us. They belong to God. As Christians, our our lives should point to a glorious and loving God. And yet, the opposite happens far too often. You see, in this passage, we see Jesus broaden the scope of the fallen human condition, in particular greed. We're not, we're not content with, God, with what God has given us. We also want what belongs to him. This passage isn't just talking about material things. Rather, it's talking about the mini-gods we set up in our lives the things we treat as if they, they belong to us as opposed to the belonging to God, belonging to a generous and gracious God. However, let me tell you that to know this condition and situation is, is good news because to keep what belongs to God doesn't end well at all. In the parable, we see in verse 9, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. This parable is is shining a light on what is truly happening here. You see, just like the character in 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 the play earlier, who's walking, listening to his music, and doesn't know he's in danger, so are we who would seek to to keep what belongs to God for ourselves. In seeking to keep what belongs to God, we are acting foolishly because one day he will rightly come and claim what belongs to him. Our lives should reflect that we live because of a generous God who has given everything to us. However, all of us are guilty at times of living like our lives belong to us. I am. We all are. Just like the character in the beginning, 
we are also walking in danger, and we need saving. Which brings us to our third and final heading. The forsaken son is our king and redeemer. This amazing grace of the father. Just to recap the previous points. Firstly, we we fail to recognize the authority of the son over our lives. Secondly, this, this is dangerous and foolish because we deny the son what rightly belongs to the father. And now we see the forsaken son is our king and redeemer. You see, the story doesn't end in gloom and doom. Rather, it ends gloriously. Think back again to this example of the character walking along, and then the sun shines through, and he realizes he's in danger. He sees the reality of his situation. Well, this is a good thing, because he can respond. He walks to the end of the path and sees only a deep abyss beneath him. He cannot cross to the other side. Every time he tries to take a a run-up to jump to the other side, the gap grows bigger and bigger and bigger. He realizes it's an impossible task. And here we read in verse 10 to 11 of the rejected and forsaken son who is our redeemer. Verse 10. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The impossible task of living rightly for God in our lives is accomplished through the Son, who is able to do the impossible. He who has defeated sin and death has authority over all heaven and earth and says that what I have done is available for you if you would just live for me. You see, it's the Lord who saves. The rejected stone has become our cornerstone. If there's anything you take away from this afternoon, it should be that it is the Lord our God who saves us. He saves us from ourselves. And as verse 11 says, it is marvelous in our eyes. We read in, verse, in Psalm um, 118, verse 22 to 24, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The, the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. We have a merciful Father who would see us forgiven and reconciled to him, even though we reject his Son time after time. The grace of God which pours us from the regency of sin and places us on solid ground. Away from danger onto a path that leads to life. For those who may still be thinking about what it means to be a Christian and to live under the heavenly authority of Jesus. Well, let me tell you that the Bible tells us of the good news, not just for Christians but good news for all those who would believe in him. The authority of the Son isn't just an authority over all Christians. It's an authority over all the earth. The earth and everything in it belongs to him. 
and to not respond rightly seems absurd, almost absurd. And this response leads to danger. However, to respond to him leads to life. For those of us who would believe and call call ourselves Christians, might we fail to recognize the authority of the Son over our lives and ultimately our sins? Because it says here in verse 11, the Lord has done it, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That sin you're struggling with, the Lord Jesus has conquered it. He has done it. The sin that your friends or family may be struggling with, know that the Lord Jesus has conquered it. He has done it. He has done it all. It is finished. The recognition that we cannot bridge the gap between us and God. He has sent his son to be that bridge. We enter into God's presence, not through what we do, but through what Christ has done. In doing so, we are rightly able to to recognize the heavenly authority of the Son over our lives. And we can ask him to continuously show us how we can give him the glory in the lives that we live. Because ultimately, it all belongs to God. And one day, one day, he will come to judge and take what rightly belongs to him. God not only sends his son as a light to reveal what is really happening and to reveal the internal danger we're in, he also offers to save us if only we just believe and have faith in the authority of his son. Isn't it amazing to see what the Lord has done? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this glorious news. Thank you for this wonderful passage which, which sheds light on, on the danger we're in, which reveals to us how we can live sinfully without knowing. But Heavenly Father, thank you because of your great love for us. You sent your Son to die for our sins, to redeem us because we couldn't do it for ourselves. Lord, please help us this afternoon to rejoice in this good news. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would continue to reveal to us how we fail to give to you what belongs to you and keep it for ourselves. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in us, guiding us and shaping us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.